They did a wonderful job. I had to look around to make sure I wasn't the only one standing a few times. <laughs> but uh, um, thank you so much for, for leading us in worship. That um, particular song, I Need You um, Every Hour, I've just, that's been one of these songs over these past few weeks. Many, many times during the day, I've just felt myself singing that. And, uh, but uh, before we start, let me open us in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to join together and to worship you and to praise you and to, to lift up your name. And Father, we thank you that in the mystery of the way that you work, that Father, you have revealed yourself to us and you have restored the relationship with you and we thank you for it. We thank you that we are not alone in this world. And Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Now, Father, I would pray that tonight that you would come through your spirit, that you would stir our hearts. Lord, that you would bring encouragement for those who are weary. And Lord, give us a new hunger for your word and a hunger for your righteousness and a hunger for your gospel. And I pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts for a lost world, for those who walk in darkness and who don't know what they're looking for. So, Lord, I pray for your blessing upon our time, and may you be glorified and may your name be honoured. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, before we start, um, a couple of you, well, a number of you have asked about the, uh, the seminar tomorrow afternoon, uh, and I thought rather than just explain it, I thought I would show it, and we have a couple of Levites who have been appointed to help show us um, this, these two banners, and I'm probably just going to use one tomorrow, the Old Testament one, but um, I want you to see what it looks like, and... They're doing a very good job. <laughs> so this is the Old Testament banner over here, and this is the New Testament, and you will notice that it has the word casket empty on it. But the, you can see kind of the letters are in the background. And in the book center, there are... This, this is the small version of the Old Testament, exactly the same as that, but small version, and then there's a small version of the New Testament. And so basically... And there's also the... Old Testament study guide which goes through this. If you look closely, you would see, for example, we talked about Isaiah and the, the theme of being Israel being blind and deaf and the picture representing the prophet Isaiah is someone who is blind and so it's biblical theology, it's also narrative. And it's, um, I'll be talking about this tomorrow. I do this in, in churches and so on, but primarily really to, to show you um, how it works um, because I've been using it, and, other, and many other churches have, as a tool to help people understand the big redemptive story of the Bible, and especially um, coming to terms with the Old Testament. So the acronym Casket Empty points to the resurrection of the Messiah, but each letter represents a period of the Old Testament. So it's just a quick way to help people get into the narrative. So that's what I'll be doing tomorrow. That was just a heads up. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great. So, uh, 
If you can turn in your Bible to uh, Genesis 6, verses 1 to 8. Genesis 6, 1 to 8. So, I don't know how many of you have seen the Noah movie. We're going to be thinking about Noah for a few minutes. Uh, but how many people seen the Noah movie? Okay, good. We won't spoil it for the others. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of, the, uh, one of the questions that I want us just to think about for a few minutes is in the Noah movie, uh, obviously there are all different mixed reactions to it. Um, I didn't go in there with high expectations, so I wasn't that disappointed. Um, <laughs> Uh, but one of the questions that I want us to be thinking about is how do we understand Noah within the flood story and what difference does it make? Okay. And in the movie, uh, this is one of the issues that, that really is um, being played with within the movie in terms of what's the character of Noah like? And there's one particular scene where he goes to this kind of the Tubal Cain kind of area and it's, it's pretty, pretty rough. And he sees himself... And, of course, there's a little serpent that kind of pops up. But he sees his face in some of these kind of wicked people. And it's really asking the question, is Noah like them or not? Okay. And his wife, being a good mother, keeps on saying, oh, my boys are good. Right? They're good boys. You know? So she doesn't see any fault in her boys. And Noah is kind of grappling with... How is he, is he the same or different than uh, the others? In the, if you look at some of the um, reports and the blogs and all this kind of that came out, what was interesting was one of the major reactions in the Christian community was the scene when he gets drunk. And if you look at the producers, they speak about that and they say what we find interesting is it, it, that the, the reaction to people was that many of them didn't know that Noah got drunk, that that was actually in the Bible. Right? And so I want us to think a little bit about how do we understand Noah and this story. And of course, it also picks up the theme that we were mentioning last night, is here we have God about to destroy the human race. Um, I was reading... Uh, various uh, topics on this whole topic of genocide. And there was one particular Christian writer, I won't mention his name, but he's very well known, and says, you know, this God in the flood, if he is going to, if this is the kind of God that we serve who's about to destroy the whole creation, I don't want any part of that God. And I thought, really? So I think we need to rethink how we understand the story and see who is this God and what is the story all about? So Genesis 6, 1 to 8. <clears throat> so, and I'm going um, to read the first few verses, uh, and I'm going to look at the first couple of verses in chapter 6, and then verses um, uh, 5 to 8. Now it came about when humankind began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they saw that they were beautiful, Good, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Right, so the story begins. A couple of things we want to mention as we look at this. First thing is that the time frame for verse 1 
it is not chronologically following chapter 5, verse 32. Okay, it goes back to an earlier time period. First thing. Now, it came about when humankind began to multiply. That word begin is about five or six times in Genesis 1 to 11 is initial activity. So what it is doing, it is going back to an earlier time period and at the beginning when they began to multiply. Okay, so we could think of um, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4. So it's recapitulation and this happens in several places in Genesis 1 to 11. Recapitulation, not chronologically following. So it came about... And so what is happening here is this story is going to give us more information about the earlier time period. Okay, that's what we want to start to see it. It came about when humankind began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Daughters, we have no reference to daughters in chapters 3 and chapter 4, but we do have daughters in the genealogy in chapter 5. Remember with the um, genealogy we have, and Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And it says for every generation they had other sons and daughters. So this therefore connects the story to chapter 5 in this genealogy, which is the line of Seth. That's important because often the line of Seth is said to be the godly line, and I'm going to pick that up in a moment. But it is connecting this story to Genesis chapter 5. And in fact, that is not surprising because Genesis chapter 5 begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam on the day when God created Adam. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and he named them Adam on the day when he created them. So this is a section beginning about human beings. And now we get into Genesis chapter 6 and it's about the daughters, but still human beings. Okay, so... And then we have verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humanity were, and you have your English translation, beautiful. The Hebrew is simply tov, good. Okay. The Hebrew is good. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good seven times. Now the sons of God see that the women are good. Okay. If you do a word study on the term tov, it's about over 400 occurrences. When good appears without any other noun, it never refers to beautiful appearance. Okay. You can have good of form or good of appearance, and then it is to do with appearance, and it's to do with um, Sarah, references as made in several other uh, women in Genesis. Now, I don't have any problem if it did say beautiful, but my point is it doesn't. It says they saw that they were good. Not only are we told that they saw that they were good, and they took, see the verb to take, they see good and take. Okay, those three terms appear together in one other place in Genesis 1 to 11, in Genesis 3 6, when Eve sees that the tree is good and takes. Right? 
So the sons of God are recapitulating the sin of Eve. Okay? So, what is going on with Eve? So when she looks at the tree, of course, we've had the command given in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, you're to eat from any tree in the garden, except from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, from the day that you eat of it, God says to Adam, you will surely die. We know that in Adam there's corporate identity, the verbs are second person singular, you singular will surely die, but actually it has impact for all humanity. Okay. Because of the, in the same way that you have the word Israel, individual Israel also is corporate Israel. Same thing with Adam, individual Adam, corporate Adam as well. The serpent wants to get Adam. Because human beings are named in Adam. They're not named in Eve, they're named in Adam. They have their identity in Adam. So then Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes to Eve and he starts dialoguing with Eve, which was her first mistake... When the serpent starts saying, did God really say she needs to come back with the word of God and says, you can go to hell. But instead, she starts dialoguing, right? She's meant to be dialoguing with God, but she's dialoguing with the serpent instead. But when the serpent speaks to Eve, he doesn't use second person feminine singular verbs. When you talk to a woman in Hebrew, you're meant to use second person feminine singular. He uses second person masculine plural. Because I think he wants to get Adam, who we know from the narrative, is there with her. If he gets Adam, he's going to get the human race. Okay? Because they have their identity in him. So... The serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say? He starts to question. Now we have the competing voice. Remember we spoke yesterday about the voice of God, the God who speaks. Human beings are not sure if they want to hear God's voice. So now the voice's word of God is being questioned. Did God really say that? And then, of course, the motive of God is being challenged. And so then we find this statement that Eve saw that the tree was good and it was desirable, and it was a delight to the eyes. And I often think of this like um, Smeagol. <laughs> now that I'm a Lord of the Ring fan, <laughs> you know, Smeagol can be doing anything, and all of a sudden when he sees the ring, the precious, time slows down. Right? And so what... The serpent does is get Eve to focus on the tree and forget the word of God, and she sees that the tree is good. Was the tree good for food? No, based on the command. She sees she is making a judgment. She is acting like God autonomously, making a judgment that the tree is good, and she takes the sons of God are seeing that the women are good, and I think they are making a moral judgment about the women. The term good, when it's used with people or with God, most is an ethical quality. The Lord is good. It's not about his appearance. The Lord is good. So they are recapitulating the sin of Eve 
They are deciding for themselves that the women are good, and they take. Quick comment here, sons of God, uh, three main views of the sons of God. One, of course, is that they're some kind of angelic beings, uh, and references to Job chapter 1 would be a very um, probably the best evidence for it in terms of the sons of God. Um, second view is that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth. That would be picking up Genesis chapter 5. And then the third view is that the sons of God are some type of human leaders or and what we're having is class distinctions here. And I think that's what's going on. I think they are not angelic beings. Um, they're not extraterrestrial uh, nor are the Nephilim contrary to the Noah movie. Right. So I think they're human beings, but I think they have an elevated status. So sons of God see that the women are good and they take wives for themselves. This is in light of Genesis chapter 3. I think it's a false judgment. And then you have God's statement about what he sees... When he looks at human beings. So Genesis 6, 2, the sons of God see that the women are good. And now we're going to see in verse 5 that the Lord sees. But he has a different assessment than the sons of God. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that seem a bit extreme? A couple of comments here. First of all, uh, often in scholarship, in, uh, especially von Rad and a number of other scholars, have seen that there is this climax just before the flood and it gets so bad that God wants to destroy everybody. I think Genesis 6-5 is making a statement about humanity, the first ten generations, not the last generation. I think it's making a statement about humanity. And this is, in the Old Testament, this is one of the most severe statement about human nature. You have a lot of terms here. God saw that the wickedness was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Okay? And I think this is making a statement about human beings, and it is what God sees when he looks at his creation. When A number of years ago, when I was doing some work in this section, when I was over at Cambridge, I was reading a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners. I have no idea why. Someone had told me about this book. I have no idea why I was reading it at the time. But I was, while I was reading this, and this book described these various battalions, and the, the thesis of the book was... Ordinary people were responsible for incredible atrocities. And they traced these battalions and they showed how the people were fathers and they have kids and they were ordinary people. And I remember reading that book at the time and I remember thinking, God, what did you see when you looked at the human heart? And there were certain parts of the book that I couldn't, I couldn't even read. And you know that when you see on the news, when you think of ISIS and when you think of the beheadings, when you think of young women being stolen and the sex trade. Right? 
And you think of some of the horrors that you see. My sister back in Australia was telling me how there's a recent, just recently, a horrific murder, but the whole body was chopped up. And you think, this is our species, right? I mean, this is us. Now, do I do that? Do you do that? No. But when God sees humanity, we are told that he was grieved in his heart. We're told the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The same word grieved is used in Genesis chapter 34. When Dinah is raped and the men of Shechem, remember they get them circumcised and Dinah's brothers hear about it and it says they are grieved in their heart and they were angry. And we allow the men, we allow the brothers to be angry about sin and we don't allow God to be angry about sin. And God says he was angry about sin and he was grieved in his heart. Dinah's brothers go and slaughter all the men of Shechem. They're that angry about it because they had defiled their sister. And we say, God is not allowed to be angry. We don't see what God sees. He sees all our thoughts. We had to put our thoughts on big screen. Thoughts over the past week, over the past few weeks. It wouldn't take long before we'd see some selfishness coming up pretty quickly. Right? Right? And the standard by which we compare ourselves is not ISIS. It is Jesus. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And I read that and I'm like, I'm undone. As soon as I hear that, I'm undone. That's the comparison. We think about kids. When kids' brothers start hitting each other or start taking something, you think, how did they learn that? Who told them about that? God says that the human heart turns away from him and he says it's every one of us. The Lord saw that the wickedness was great on the earth and that he, every intent of the thought was only evil and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That word grieved that's used in Genesis 34, the verbal root is the same verbal root in Genesis 3, 16 and 17 when a woman is to experience pain in childbearing and when the earth is going to be painful to toil it and it underscores that the fall doesn't simply affect human beings but it affects God. He's bearing the pain of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. So he's grieved in his heart and he says, I will blot out man, human beings, whom I have created from the face of the land. So God's response is he wants to wipe out humanity. Now this term 
Hebrew word machah, to wipe out, is if you have a name in a book and you dip it in water and then you look at it and all the name's gone. God doesn't simply want to wipe out human beings from a book. He says he wants to wipe them out from mitachath hashamayim, from underneath the heavens. So that when God looks, there's no memory of them. That's what he wants to do. And that may be why the name Adam is not found very often in the Old Testament. It's going to shift to Abraham, where God's going to make his name great. And I think there's something going on here with the, the minimizing of the name Adam, which causes problems for Old Testament scholars. And they say, well, if Adam's sin was so important, why doesn't Adam get mentioned throughout? And I think it's coming back to here. So God says, I want to blot them out from the face of the land, and I am sorry that I have made them. But, we like the buts in the Bible, right? But Noah was good. Now I do have some, this is why my suitcase is heavy. Rain, rain, rain. As time went by, people in the world did bad things, just as Adam and Eve. Noah was the only good man left on the earth. The first rainbow. Many years passed after Adam and Eve left the garden. People began to forget about God. They began to do bad things. There was only one good man. His name was Noah. My very first Noah and the ark... Long, long ago, God looked down to see the world. God had, had made a good world. Now people were spoiling it. They were always fighting. I'm sorry I ever made the world, said God. I shall wash it away. God saw that there was one good man. Phew. You're going to go home and... Okay, here are the bad people. Biff, boff, baff. Here is Noah. He is good and kind. Noah and his big boat has the heading. One good man. Many years ago, there was a good man on the earth. His name was Noah. Most people were not good. They were greedy. They fought each other. God was sad that he put people on the earth and he said, I will destroy the earth. But God saw that Noah was good. I do. Between bringing idols with me and Noah's books. <laughs> okay. There came a time when people forgot about God. There was only one good man, Noah. God said, you are good, Noah. Thank you, God, said Noah. <laughs> He's very polite as well. <laughs> Noah, this is now for adults. Noah was born nearly blameless, for all we know. 
Noah is the prologue's odd man out. As unnatural in his goodness as the others are normal in their self-destructiveness. We'll never know about Noah, about how he came to be so good. God simply finds him that way, noticing him at the 11th hour as a possibility for starting the human race all over again. English translations. Noah was a good man. Good news Bible. Noah had no faults and was the only good man of his time. So what does the scripture say? The word good is not used with reference to Noah. Remember the, the, um, the teacher comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, and, and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Okay. The contrast in Genesis chapter 6 is not everyone is wicked, but Noah was good. That's not what's going on. It is not everyone was wicked, but Noah was righteous. That's not going on. The contrast is everyone is wicked, and I would suggest even Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8. The contrast, and it's a contrast in Hebrew, is with the wickedness of humanity and God's decision to wipe out human beings. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what does favor mean then? And what difference does it make? Because Genesis 6 verse 8 is the conclusion to the history of humanity, which begins with this Toledoth structure, we call it. These are the generations of, begins in Genesis 5.1. This is a key moment because in verse 9, it begins a new section in Hebrew. So this is marking the end of the history of humanity. And it begins on a note of favor. The Hebrew term is chain, karis, Greek. What does this mean? So, if you look at the idiom, to find favor in the eyes of. It really just means, could you do me a favor? That's the common usage. It's not to do with sin. It's to do with polite term, could you do me a favor? Could you do something for me? What scholars have noticed that the language, if I have found favor, it's often with an if, because someone can refuse it. It's not based on covenants. Covenant, you're obligated to do something. This is not covenantal. It is asking someone to do something for you. If I, if I found favor, if you could be so kind, you're often talking to someone who's superior than you are, who's in the position to show favor. So Ruth receives favor in the eyes of Boaz. It's not because she's a sinner or she's done anything wrong, quite the contrary, but it is favor because Boaz is not required to do anything for her because she's a foreigner. And she says, if I found favor. So he's acting in kindness, in generosity. 
So at the very least, we can say that God is acting in kindness, in generosity to Noah. But I think there's something more going on. And there are two places in the Old Testament where favor is like a, a, um, a dominance of language. And the two passages are Exodus 32 and 34 and Genesis 32 and 34. Okay, two passages Exodus 32 and 34, Genesis 32 and 34. So uh, the first one in Genesis is the Jacob and Esau story. And remember the story where Jacob has um, dressed up to be his brother. Remember he puts on the, the animal skin and it's, it's just a pitiful, pitiful scene. Because his dad's going blind and he's, you know, his mum's in on it. And, and he's trying to get the inheritance from his brother. So it's a pitiful scene, you know. And the dad says, is that you, my son Esau? And he says, Hineni in Hebrew, here it's me. You sure it's you? Sure it's you? It's, you know, come closer. You know, yes, it's me, it's me. And she feels him. She feels his neck and everything. So, so he takes his brother, steals his brother's birthright, and then, of course, when Esau comes in, he's absolutely furious. And so Jacob has to flee. And then a number of years later, when he's about to meet Esau, Esau's coming with over 400 men, and he's like afraid for his life because he knows what he's done. And so he sends a whole stack of animals to Esau. And he says, when he goes to meet him, he says, what, what is all this stuff? And he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, I'm doing it to gain favor. And Esau doesn't want it. And scholars have picked up on that passage and, they, and there's lots of things that go on in that passage to show that Jacob is in the wrong. But what does Esau do? Esau lavishly accepts him. And he shows him favor. And he says, I have seen your face as one who sees the face of God. Because you have received me favorably. So why do we talk about that? Because in that passage, favor means getting something you don't deserve. Next passage is Exodus 32 to 34. It's the golden calf story. And you know the story in Exodus chapter 20. The Israelites have made this commitment to follow the Ten Commandments. They've been given the commandments. Exodus 24, they've entered into a covenant and they say to God, all that you have spoken, we're going to do it. We're going to follow you. And of course, the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You're not meant to make an image, an idol. And so they have agreed that they are going to follow God's laws. And then Moses is up on the mountain at Mount Sinai. And here are the people. And they're like, oh, we don't know what's happened to Moses. And so they say, go and make us an idol. And they go to Aaron, who's the high priest. And, and make an idol. And then when Moses hears about it and God tells him and he's furious 
And God says, I'm not going to go with you. And he pleads and he says, if now I have found favor in your sight. And he not only says, if I have found favor, but if I and your people have found favor in your sight, go with us. And of course, God reveals his character being gracious and compassionate. And so you see within that story as well, the unmerited favor. Scholars have picked up Exodus 32 and 34 and connected it to the flood story. I think what Noah gets in Genesis 6-8 is grace. Why is that important? So what I think is going on in this story is that God wants to destroy humanity. But he initiates the relationship with Noah as an act of grace. He initiates the act with Noah, this relationship, as an act of grace. Christianity Today poll, 2014, just the end, um, self-described evangelical. 71% think people first seek God, then he responds in grace. God doesn't save good people. He is coming to Noah in grace. And I think Noah is a sinner like everybody else. I know some of you are thinking, but it says that Noah was righteous, and I'm going to come to it in just a moment. How do I know he was a sinner like everybody else? And why is this so important? We're going to unpack it. Genesis 8.21, after the flood, God says, I'll no longer curse the ground, even though... The thoughts of humanity are evil from their youth. Quoting Genesis 6-5. And everyone says, all scholars say, this means that the sin that was around before the flood is around after the flood. And guess who's there? Noah and his family. And then right, what comes right after that? The story when Noah gets drunk. The one that we don't like, Christians didn't like in the Noah movie. Right? Noah gets drunk and the language being used to describe his drunkenness is echoing Genesis chapter 3. So, I think Noah is receiving grace. Uh, if you look at translations of Genesis 6-9, but Noah found favor, um, at one point I looked at about over 50 kids' books, not one had the word favor in it. Favor is missing. If you miss grace, you will miss the whole story. So, and translations haven't done a good job with this as well. Uh, the uh, contemporary English version of Genesis 6 8, but as for Noah, the Lord approved of him. Easy to read, 2006, but Noah pleased the Lord. This is favor, right? This is retranslating favor, but Noah. Please the Lord, the living Bible. But Noah was a pleasure to the Lord, the message. But Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. The voice. I didn't know there was a translation, the voice. But, but there was one person whom the Lord could not let go of, Noah, because this man pleased him. Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life, talks about on day nine, he addresses the question, what makes God smile? 
And he goes on and talks about the judgment that's about to come on humanity. And then he says, but there was one man who made God smile. The Bible says Noah was a pleasure to the Lord. This guy brings me pleasure. He makes me smile. I'll start over with his family. Grace is in the character of God. Because whose eyes does he find favor in the eyes of the Lord? We were talking last night about how God is being misrepresented in the Old Testament. The Lord, why is it, what difference does it make? Because it is the Lord God who reveals his name, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is the God who is, it is the hallmark of his characteristic in the Old Testament. When he says who he is, he says the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. And so we mentioned yesterday in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, Elohim. Remember that? Then in Genesis 2, 4, we find out that Elohim is the Lord God. And you need to have the Lord God when you start to see what happens with Adam, who is it, after they have eaten from the fruit, who goes after them? It's the Lord God. Who is it when Cain has murdered his brother and he says, oh, my punishment's going to be too great for me to bear. Someone's going to kill me. And you feel like saying, yeah. Who, who is it who puts a protective mark on him? The Lord God. God is about to destroy humanity because he is a holy God. And I don't need to apologize for God's holiness. I don't need to be embarrassed by God's holiness because he's a holy and righteous God. And we need to teach about God's holiness. But he is also a God of grace. And he has provided the means by which sinful people can come into the presence of a holy God. And so here, Noah finds favor. And I just want to mention, we'll look at righteousness in a moment. But why is this so important that we get this right at the beginning of the story? Because I think we have a tendency to think God saves good people. This was brought home to me um, a couple of years ago um, when I was doing some um, translating in Genesis. And I remember when I um, first translated the whole Jacob and Esau story. You know, Genesis chapter 27, when he um, you know, goes through and takes his brother's birthright. And I remember reading that in the Hebrew text being so sort of like horrified. It was so slow and it was just painful. And Esau coming in, and I just remember just thinking, oh, this is just such a pitiful scene with the dad who's going blind, and it was pitiful. And all my sympathies were with Esau. And you know what? Do you know what happens next? Jacob flees, and God blesses him. And I remember thinking to myself, what? Like, what, what are you doing, God? What, that's, that's just not right. 
Why are you blessing him? Doesn't deserve it. And that's right. It's grace. But we don't always think that way about ourselves. Do you? How many times do you think, oh, I don't deserve it. We sort of feel like we should have something coming to us. And I think there is lurking underneath a failure to kind of get hold of. That's why we have problems with God's judgment, because we don't know what sin's about. And so we also don't want to communicate to the people that we're ministering to that the good people are inside the ark and the bad people are outside. Sinners were in the ark. I'm going to talk about righteousness, but there were sinners in the ark saved by faith. And that has enormous impact on your theology and on your mission. And especially with what's going on in the church and in the culture today, we want to retreat and say they're the bad people, the wicked people, and we're the good people inside. That's what we want to do. But the gospel is about a sinner understanding God's grace going out because we have been cleansed by God. Because we know his grace, it drives us to go out and look at the other as God looks at them and as he looked at us. The danger of the, the kids' books is that they separate and they put a theology of good people in the ark and bad people outside. What could you do with the kids' books? So here's what I would be doing with them. I would be saying, you know, there once was this man, and when he was a young boy, he was just like you. He would hit his brother. And he would take things from his brother just like you do. And when he grew up, God came to him and said he had a special plan for his life. And God was going to do something, even though he used to hit his brother and he was just like you. And he was just like mum when mum yells sometimes or you, dad yells sometimes. That's God came and said he had a special plan for him. See how it's a different, uh, uh, rather than God coming to good people. We'll look at it tomorrow night with Abraham. You find the kids' books do the same thing with Abraham, saying he, there once was a good man named Abraham. We will look at it. Abraham was an idol worshiper. We're going to pick up the theme that we looked at um, last night. What is the answer to idolatry? It is going to be the grace of God. So last piece we'll talk about. Uh, So how do we understand the language of um, righteousness? I just want to um, notice the two places where it it appears, Genesis 6-9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6-9. The other place that it's used in the story is in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So how do we understand this statement? A couple of things. First of all, in Genesis 7, 1, this is the first occasion within the actual narrative. It's in a narrative context that God says to Noah, Now I have seen that you are righteous. It is immediately following him building the ark, which he has to do by faith. Because you have to make the ark by faith, because if you wait until the rain comes, it's probably too late. So you have to do it by faith. And that's why Hebrews chapter 11 says that his righteousness is according to faith. So 
God says to him, you are in the right. Being righteous is not the same as being sinless. He is being declared to be in the right, even though a sinner, and it is by his faith and his obedience. And I think that's the first point in the story when he is declared righteous in the narrative. So how do we understand Genesis 6-9? What scholars have done is they have, and interpreters have assumed that when it says, but Noah found favor, oh, why did he find favor? Next verse, he was righteous. I don't think that's the way it's working at all. There's no grammatical connection in the Hebrew. And I think Genesis 6-9 is introducing, it's a heading, it's this genealogical heading, and it is giving us a summary of his life. Is Noah declared righteous and is he, does he enter the ark because he is righteous? Absolutely. But he is not righteous when God finds him. He is unrighteous and he will be declared righteous by faith in the same way that Abraham will be declared righteous by faith. And the same way we are. Right? Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, according to the, um, the flesh, has found? For as Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is how we, as sinners, are declared righteous. So I think grace is a driving theme in the book of Genesis. And if you look at the lives of the patriarchs, they are messy, messy lives. I've done um, Bible studies going through Genesis with non-Christians, and they're like, wow, I can't, can't believe these people are in the Bible. And I'm like, there's lots of them. <laughs> and I think people need to know that within the church, there's messy lives too. Right? Messy lives, but the grace of God works in and through our lives. Um, and so I think the, the theme of Genesis, we could talk much more about it, but I think there's the theme of divine grace is what runs through the narratives uh, so that you see all kinds of stories of um, things taking place with them, uh, which starts to make us feel a little bit more at home because we also have messy lives and messy families. But the mess in our lives does not prevent God from working. Think about um, Abraham, he gets the promises, chapter 12. And then that, that same chapter, he then lies about his wife, Sarah. In chapter 20, with Abraham, he says that Sarah's his sister, Abimelech, is about to have sexual relations with her. Only reason he doesn't is because God steps in. Think about the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Leviticus 18 and 20, you get stoned for that. And he's, Judah's the ancestor of King David. Messy lives, but the grace of God comes and pursues people. Uh, so I think that's what we need to be preaching in the church. We've talked about God's judgment and his holiness. We need to hold on to those, but we also need to be communicating about God's grace. 
One of the things I like to do, even with classes, uh, with teaching, is um, I want to be as real as possible when I'm teaching my classes with students. Um, and um, I think we need transparency in our lives. doesn't mean we're sharing all our kind of dirty linen or whatever, maybe. You don't have to share everything, but I think we need to have transparency in our lives. Um, and one of the things I know with my own, um, I teach obviously at Gordon-Conwell, and um, with my study at Gordon-Conwell and then um, doing my um, doctoral work at Cambridge, um, I don't ever want to forget where I've come from and the grace of God in my own life. And I was back in Australia as um, my own family was a, a huge, messy family. Parents divorced. Um, I ended up leaving school when I was 14. I worked in my mum's businesses. Um, I worked there for about 10 years, and my mum actually pulled me out of school, and then I left home when I was 16. And uh, life was pretty chaotic. My mum was also alcoholic for most of my life growing up. And it was a mess. It was a mess. But some, I had been to this local church, and some people in the local church would pick me up, and my sister did go to youth group. So I worked with my mum's businesses for about 10 years, and um, very turbulent over that time, but one particular time I went to church, and there was a, a um, I don't know what the message was on, but it was an evangelistic message. And my life was a mess. I'd moved out of home, I came back home, realised that I wasn't able to be the person I wanted to be, and I just was in a bad place. I went to church, and there was an evangelistic Baptist church, Sorry. <laughs> and there was, a, there was an altar call. You know, 300 people in the church, and you had to go down the front, and I went down. I was weeping. Gave my life to the Lord, and my life changed. I remember going home that day thinking my chains fell off and my heart was free. And that's why I teach the, that's why I teach the Scripture. I don't do it for a career or for PhD or whatever. That's why I do my Old Testament stuff because I know the grace of God in my life and I want to communicate who God is. That's why I get offended. I get highly offended when I hear Christians say, I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. Right? I get offended by that, personally offended by it. I understand it because of the way I understand it, but that's why I'm committed to teach the Old Testament, to help people in the church to understand it. Finish with the last story. We... Um, I mentioned last night about Jacob. Remember uh, how uh, Rachel had the idols in her pocket. So what's, what's interesting that happens with Jacob is that um, after Genesis 27, after he's, um, he steals his brother's birthright, God comes and blesses him Okay, in Genesis 28 at Bethel. And then what happens is... Um, Jacob says to God, God, you know, if you'll keep me safe on this journey and if you'll bring me back, and he addresses him as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He's not the God of Israel yet. And he says, if you're going to keep me safe on this journey, then you're going to become my God. And so Jacob, then when he wrestles with God... He's kept safe. That then prepares him for when he meets Esau. Remember that? And he's delivered. And then what happens after that? That he's on his way back to Bethel. 
and he knows God has kept him safe. He's, he's been striving with God, but he was also safe, remember with the Jacob Esau story, when he finds favor in the eyes of Esau, and he says, I have seen your face as one who sees the face of God because you've received me graciously. So they're heading on their way back, and you know what they do? He says to the women and to the people who are with him, get your idols out. And they bury them. God has not given the command yet, you shall have no other gods before me. I think he understands the grace of God in his life. And he gets it. And he buries his idols and then he builds an altar to the God of Israel. It's an encounter with the living God. And, he, and I think, as we spoke about idolatry, that we need to help people to see the grace and the mercy of God. And it's got to come through us. And when they discover who God is, they will let go of their false concepts of God and find the real God. Amen? Amen. Let me uh, close us in a word of prayer. I'm wondering, could we have that song, I Need You? Could we sing that for the, the worship leader? Yes, could we, could we have that be close us in a word of prayer? And then if you could um, lead us in that, that would be wonderful. And then we'll have some time of questions. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have indeed found your grace and we have found your mercy. And Father, that you have not treated us as we deserve. And Father, even as I think about my own story and the call that you placed upon my life and the journey that you've brought me on. And I know that we could go around this room and each person could talk about the journey that you have brought them on. And we thank you, Father, that you're faithful. And Father, we cry out as we think of a world that misunderstands you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be vehicles of your grace and your mercy and that your grace in us would not prove vain that we would be good stewards of all that you have given us, that you would be glorified through us. Amen. So we have a uh, few minutes for questions. Hi, Carol. Uh, I just wanted to... I'm over here. Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> I saw Where? the microphone going up there. So. Where is he? No. <laughs> um, I just had a question about 6-9, um, uh, yes. with the word righteousness. Is, is, is the Hebrew for that, is that tzadikah? Is that the... Uh, tzadik. Tzadik. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I guess my question is, with the way that we, as a Western audience, so yeah. often will translate um, tzadak or tzadik, yeah. <laughs> and it's Greek, you know, dikaiosune, yeah. Yeah. as righteousness. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, even in the song we just sang, like, yeah. my one defense, like, my righteousness, yeah. we're so focused on kind of the, in, the individualistic yeah. um, approach to that. And so I guess my question is, is when you look at it as, 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 um, as justice, you yeah. know, that, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for justice, you know, that yeah. turns... That turns that focus away from right. from us as individuals, as one who is right in the eyes of God, right. to one who pursues what is right in terms of what God would 
And so, yeah. I guess, I'm sorry, my, I guess my yeah. question is, um, what does it mean that Noah was a just man? And how, how yeah. do we... So it's a great question. So the two, the two Hebrew terms, tzaddik is the adjective, and then tzedakah is the noun. So in Genesis 6, 9, and 7, 1, it's tzaddik. So it's the adjective. And then in Genesis 15, 6, it's tzedakah. Okay? And, and the difference with them, tzedakah, is a righteous action that you do. Okay? So that it's it is an important distinction. I'll, I'll pick up a little bit with Abraham tomorrow night. So I, I, think, um, I think it is helpful to use the language of righteousness. Um, Tzudakar is, is something different. Tzudak, and the good place to look at this is Ezekiel at chapter 18 because he uses both. The righteous man does tzudakar, does righteousness. And that's to look after the orphan and the widow and all those things. So Genesis, uh, Ezekiel 18... So, but basically, the language of righteousness is legal law court language. Um, if you think of, and that's what it is throughout the Pentateuch, um, Genesis um, actually uses the language of tzaddik for non Israelites. Genesis chapter 20, uh, it is used of Abimelech. You'll, won't, you'll see innocent, but it's actually tzaddik. Um, Genesis chapter 18, the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative, those who are in the right and those who are in the wrong or those who are in the right and guilty. So it's legal law court language. Why is that important? It means Genesis, um, sorry, um, Deuteronomy uh, 25 and Deuteronomy 16 are two passages. So it does mean that when someone is brought with a charge and the judge declares someone to be in the right and, or someone to be in the wrong. So in that sense, it still hasn't got to do with justice. I think when it, the song says, my righteousness, ultimately that's in Christ, because it's his righteousness that we receive. Um, so it is what's happening with Noah is God is declaring Noah to be in the right. And why is he in the right? Because he is by faith, built the ark. It's not to do with some ethical thing that he's done. It is because he's built the ark and in the mystery of the way God works that faith is what he wants to see in us. When we come to Abraham, we'll look at him tomorrow night, he is, it is his faith that is as if he doesn't, act, he doesn't have the act of righteousness, he doesn't have something, but his faith has been counted as though he has it. So it should result in doing righteousness. Genesis 18 talks about Abraham, I've chosen him that he might do tzedakah. But the declaration comes first. Yep. You mentioned uh, the Lord saw the wickedness of humans. And uh, I thought it was interesting. I never heard that it referred to all the generations before. Yeah. What do you think it was that triggered God off at that point to say, I've had enough? Yeah, so I think, um, so I think uh, this, this is also another question. I, I um, did a, presented a paper when I was at Cambridge on Genesis 6-5 and argued that in the Old Testament uh, Hebrew Bible department there um, because we have traditionally seen it as the final. So I think we are already seeing the patience of God in the early chapters of the story. Um, some have minimized the role of Adam, and I think that's 
it's a whole other conversation, but I think we've, we've failed to see the significance of disobedience. So I think it, why does God do it at this point? We do have the 10 generations. Um, I think God is sovereignly working when Lamech names him Noah and says, this one will give us rest from the curse. I think that's God's hand at, at work there. Um, but we're not told the exact why at this time. But I think it is underscoring that God has been patient in his judgment. And of course, the same sin continues after the flood. So the reason there's not another flood is because God has chosen to withhold his judgment in spite of sin. Other questions? Can you share any more about your thoughts of the term, the sons of God and the Nephilim, of what, what the ideas in those and your interpretation yeah, that it's just the higher class of and how you yeah, so there's, do the background of that. Yeah, so um, the, I mentioned the three views. One is that there's some sort of angelic beings um, and the reference in Job for that. Um, um, and then the other one is that um, they are the godly line of Seth and so the sin would be the marriage of the godly line of Seth in chapter 5, which actually I don't think, I think that's an overstatement. Um, I don't think we've got this strong contrast between the, the righteous and the wicked. Is strong. I don't think it's as strong in Genesis 1 to 11 as we think it is. So, um, so son of God language can be used of, human, of kings, of royal. Um, son of God language is used of David, Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. So it can be an honorific title. Uh, there is an article by Kleins with a K, um, uh, Meredith Klein, who argues for this, but others have as well. Um, I don't think that they are... Um, I mean, either you could hold either one of these views and you could make a good case for it because I think the evidence is fairly equally weighted. And either, either one of them... But I, think they're, I don't think they're um, angelic beings. I don't think there's enough. I've just, I wouldn't mind theologically if that was what, what, but it's just like I've just worked in enough and I just can't quite see. Um, I think they're human beings. The judgment is against humanity. It's not against angelic beings here as well. So, I'm thinking with regard to, I think it's the James passage about yep. the prayers of a righteous person availeth much. Yep. I've often thought the corollary is the prayer of an unrighteous person availeth little. Yeah it would seem that the prayers of any person would be enough to avail much or little, depending on what God wants to do. So give me some understanding of how the prayers of a righteous man yeah. availeth much. Well, I do, I do think, um, you know, obviously you've got the whole Elijah kind of narrative there as well, but, um, um, I mean, the miracle is God hears sinners' prayers, right? I mean, think about King Manasseh who's the worst king of the southern kingdom. Absolute worst king. Bloodshed, murder, you know, spiritus, spirit mediums, all the, all the whole shebang. Goes to, God sends him to Babylon in judgment. When he's in Babylon, he prays, Second Chronicles 33, he prays to God. And it says, and God was entreated by him. And he brings him back to Babylon and... 
then Manasseh says, now I've realized that there's a God and he gets rid of all his idols. So there's a prayer, that's a sinner's prayer of repentance, prayers of repentance. But I think, um, you know, clearly there's that, that the whole concept that sin has separated us from God. And so, you know, we have confidence. Hebrews talks about we have confidence to enter the, high, the holy place, which is place of prayer, because of Jesus and what he's done. So I think that's picking up that whole kind of theology of, of um, Christians being able to, to um, pray to God because we can enter with confidence before him, before the throne of grace. So, yep. Hi, Jim Milley. And yeah. I want to, I think you're trying to help us focus on the character of God. Yeah. So I want to give you a question. Yes. About the character of God. Yeah. I'm a dad of three children. Yes. 16, 14, and 12. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, someone asks, so why did God do it then? Well, my kids start bothering me, you know, and I just get fed up right. until I blow my top, yeah. right? Yeah. So how is it in this story that God's not like me? Hmm. Did God blow his top and do the flood Yeah. and suddenly he's... He's okay now. So, um, well, the answer is the long-nosed God. Right? You know that he's got a long... He's slow to anger. It means he's long of nose. That's literally what the expression is. Uh, and it means that when you're angry, your nose, you get red, your face gets red kind of thing, right? And his is a long nose, and it takes a while for him to get... He's slow to anger. does get angry, but he's slow about it. So, um, and if you go through the story of the Old Testament, is when I teach Old Testament, I mean, students normally, they get halfway through the course and they're like, oh, I can't believe Israel's doing this again. Oh, and everyone in the class is really like, get rid of them, wipe them out. No, he's going to do it one more time. That's right. That's why David says, better to be in the hands of God than man. That's why David says it. He knows that. So I think um, uh, we are to display his grace and being slow to anger, too. Yeah, yeah I'm thinking, you know, somebody who is thinking that, you know, God is very, not a very nice person because of uh, some of the things in the Old Testament, somebody who's an unbeliever, and, you know, based on what you were saying, if they're sitting here listening to you and... and uh, so there was sin before the flood, and then after the flood, Noah gets drunk, and there's sin after the flood. That's right. So how would you respond to somebody who would say, so what's the point? Why do it if it's the same before? You know, what, yeah. what do you accomplish? Yeah, because if you look at kids' books, they will say, God started afresh with a nice, clean world. I'm like, well, not really. So what's the point of it? I think it shows what sin deserves. doesn't accomplish anything. It takes more than water to wash the human heart. Yeah. I feel like you're um, talking about the freedom of God and how it, for lack of a better word, conflicts yeah. with our freedom or our sense of to be entitled right. to be free ourselves. And I just, 
I've been sitting here trying to ask a question, come up with a question. Yeah. Uh, but I just wanted your com comment just uh, today is yeah. how, uh, about how entitled we feel, how offended we feel that God is freer. And that's just yeah. unadulterated and uncontrolled by us. What would be yeah, your Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great way of um, kind of phrasing it because there is that sense of, I mean, this is sometimes when I read the material and like, you know, as I said, I mentioned that quote with someone like, if that's the God, that's, the, you know, I don't, I don't want to worship him. And I'm like, well, don't worship him. Find someone else. I mean, that's who he is. I mean, you know, like, this is God. And I think... Um, you know, that's where I feel like I, I, you know, when I teach Old Testament survey, I go through all the, this, every one of the stories of the, the judgment pieces as well as the other, because I want them to get the full, and I have people coming out of Old Testament, sorry, I have guys coming out with like weeping going, I've just gone through a whole conversion thing, I think of going who God is, you know, but it's with both, but I think we are entitled, we feel that sense of entitlement, and we, again, I, this is what I was trying to get at last night, and that was a big concept, and I probably communicated imperfectly because it's big concept, but it's like, you know, we want God to be who we want him to be, and he's not. You know, he's God, and he's not like us, and he, I want to let him be God. And, you know, people say, well, why did Noah find favor? And, and you know, they, this is the thing, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I get to choose. And it's to do with me, not you. People say, well, God must have known about Noah that he was going to obey. No, no, it's with God. He, he gets to choose who he shows grace to, and he can choose not to. When David, remember with David and Bathsheba, God shows him grace, but then remember the son's about to die, and the same language of grace, if I've found favor, right? And God kills the son. He chooses, because grace is not obligation. Right? That's covenant is obligation. Grace is not obligation. He's not obligated. You know, some of the books... I, I wrote a book on this. I, I'm not advertising it because it's expensive at the moment and it's like $120 for the book. It's in an academic journal series. So I'm going to do a popular book. But some of the people were like, God's obligated to save Noah. I'm like, no, I don't think so. Um, you just you just started to touch on it, and that was what I was going to ask about. Mm. Um, so we did Noah tonight, and we're going to yep. look at Abraham tomorrow. Yeah. Um, between Noah and Abraham, the yep. covenant language yes. starts. Um, yep. Is there a significance that that's where it starts? Because um, obviously now covenant's going to play out. That's right. Throughout. That's right. So you start to have the covenant in chapter 9, um, and it's... The covenant is giving assurance that even though the sin that caused the flood is still around, God covenants in the most strongest term possible that he's not going to destroy the earth in the same way. So he's And this is why it's important even in where we are today in the narrative is that we think because there's not judgment, there's not sin. Right? Absence of judgment doesn't mean absence of sin just means God could be withholding judgment. And of course, we're in the season of the church where God is withholding, right? He's the time of the gospel going out, but there will be a final judgment. It's another, we didn't talk about that, but that's another topic we don't want to talk about. 
know. I'm doing this um, study, Bible study, with this uh, non-Christian lady I mentioned. We're going through Christianity Explored, and one of the topics we just read was like, started to talk about hell. It was just one or two questions. I said, well, there's a light topic for you. <laughs> you know. So, but it was like, well, at least good on them for mentioning it. You know, like what, what is there's some final judgment and we could debate about what that's going to look like. But we, we and every knee will bow and we don't like that. So. Yeah. Can you say more about the, you know, the Noah was found in favor? Yeah. And why it was, why it was translated poorly in other translations and what, what's the move there? Is it theological? It's just. Yeah, it is. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's it's a Hebrew idiom if, if to find favor. Um, so we've we we've made the shift and made it something in the person who receives favor rather than the one who's showing it. We've made that shift um, because we think that because. We're actually kind of doing a little bit of theology and we're saying, but because God showed him favor, there must have been something in him that pleased God. And so my point is that's not favor then. That's merit stuff. It's not favor. Favor is, and the example, of course, in the golden calf story is there is nothing in Israel which merits favor. They've just broken the covenant. They've set up an idol, so they're in a position of demerit. So, but in that story, and that's part of why I you know, wrote the book on this, to, to say, look, um, we need to go back to what the, the Hebrew text is, what the language is, and re, you know. So, yeah. Can you link all this to Enoch? Where's Enoch in uh, this conversation? Yes, yeah, so Enoch, um, where you have the... You don't have the language of favor, but you do have walking with God, which, of course, Noah, we didn't talk about that either, but Noah walks with God, so there's a whole relational piece there. Um, and Enoch walks with God. So that's so. I think what the story of Enoch, and Noah does this to some degree as well, but Enoch is, um, the whole genealogy is, and he died, 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 except Enoch, and all you're told is Enoch walked with God. And so somehow there's a wonderful, literary, beautiful way, I mean, of saying somehow walking with God is the answer to death. It just makes you ponder that. Uh, another question. Um, I'm holding to... Sorry, now who's, who's asking the question? Over here. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's some human freedom. I totally agree with you about the freedom of God. Some human freedom too. And so God comes to Noah and says, build an ark. Yes. And if Noah hadn't built the ark, yes. then Noah would go to somebody else and say, build the ark. And Noah wouldn't even be in the Bible. Yes. So there is... So, and of course, the Calvinists would say it's irresistible grace, right? And the Arminianists would say, well, he chose to respond to the grace. What we do, I emphasize, is that it is initiated by grace. You know... But we're still, it's kind of one of those, it is interesting because he does and other people don't follow. He's a herald of righteousness and no one else follows. Yes? If we're to accept the God of the Bible and God's a he, why is that important? What's the significance of that? That's certainly under assault. And yeah. 
in question today? I mean, I think, I think the first thing is you have to start with the language of the Bible. I think that's, I think that's the first thing. Um, from the beginning of Genesis, you have um, third-person masculine singular verbs where you have a, a plural subject. Elohim is plural. So that's... But you, you have... You do have some references to a feminine, um, uh, like, a, like a mother hen and looking after a chick. There's some feminine language being used, um, but, you know, I don't know whether it's like 1% in comparison to 99%. So um, you also have, of course, God appearing in human form and so on. So, um, so I think staying with where the original language is... Um, Uh, I think um, humanity is also obviously a, a dam in the male, but then you've also got male and female being represented in there. So you have the corporate dimension of the um, Trinity. So, but um, so why is that important? Um, I'd have to think through that. I mean, I know in terms of Trinity, but I have to think through in terms of language. I mean, language—it's—it's it's certainly staying with what the language is. Um, but the theological implications, I'm not, I'd have to think for, further about. It's a good question, though. Someone else may have a good answer for that. I know we're talking about the Old Testament, but it, um, as we're talking about the concept of finding favor, I'm thinking there was somebody else, there was somebody else, there was somebody else, and it's Mary, right, right in Luke. And so... And if, we were, uh, if we're understanding the Hebrew behind yeah. the New Testament, yeah. is that... Is it the same word, the same etymology, the same? Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to look at. But yeah, the the Greek translation is charis, right. where we get we get grace. Um, uh, so, and it's the the theme, of course, runs through the Old Testament and into the New. It's it's the unlikely people, and it's not that he only uses. Again, we don't want to say God only uses unlikely people, but he does because he wants to show it's about him. So. Uh, you know, so this is whether it's whether it's um, Hannah as she's praying, and you know, so there's there's this um, Moses. I mean, he's an unlikely character too. You know, uh, David, who am I that you've chosen my house? Insignificant because it shows God's choice rather than it being something doesn't do birth, based on birth order. So it's so that we we don't get the thing. Oh, it must be because he's firstborn or. Because of this, and of course, David, when he gets chosen, love the story when all his brothers, I mean, he's out in the field, he doesn't even have, he's not even invited to the meal. It's just like God. It's a great, great story. All right. God's being the God of the underdog in Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testaments, and it made me think of the passage from Second Peter, where the scoffers are saying, where is this coming that he promised? And uh, it says then that the Lord is not slow keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, yeah. but everyone to come to repentance. Yeah. Is that yeah, a, 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 an a overarching great, theme for all of great, these things? Great, great verse. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a good verse to close with, or do we have any more questions? <laughs> all right, good. Good.